You know, I so I bring it back to I'm the middle child, right? Um, and uh, I grew up in a single um, parent household. My mother is amazing. You know, she raised all of us, and um, but I was the only man in the house. You know, so I really had to navigate those waters. You know, um, I have become better um, conversationalist because of it. You know, I have become a better. Um, I've been better at empathy uh, because of it, sympathy, but I also think overall I've become a better, um, I've I've become better at knowing who, what place I play in the world. It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, today on the program, we got the incomparable Kenneth Murphy. If you do not know this name, you will. Kenneth is a legend in the New York ballroom scene and has had a hand in preserving its legacy in the New York public library system. Quick content warning right off the top, we do talk a lot about trauma, queer phobia, the impacts of white supremacy, and poverty. So as always, if these things are not right for you to listen to, please feel free to switch this one off and we'll catch you on the next one. Kenneth goes on to talk about black masculinity and queerness, what it was like to grow up in New York City, the importance of mentoring in the lives of black men, the history of the Manhattan ballroom scene, and the work of preserving that history in partnership with the New York Public Library. It was such an honor to get to chat to Kenneth and linger a little bit and hear from his wisdom. Please enjoy our conversation. So uh, the question that I was thinking about since you mentioned it, you mentioned that there was an AIDS walk in town today. Yes, uh, there's an aid walk going on today in New York City. Okay. Um, expected to be a whole bunch of people there walking. I know a few friends that are walking today, um, and it's a beautiful day today. Yesterday, we had the really bad rain here. It was raining nonstop. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So today's a beautiful day outside, so it's a perfect day for a walk, you know, and just happened that, you know, it's going to bring uh, so many people to the city. Um, for a good cause. So yeah, it's a lot going on to the city. I mean, when, is, when is it there? A lot going on to the city, right? This is very true about New York, <laughs> at least the, the tiny bits that I know of it, that there is always something happening. <laughs> right. Can you think of a time, I know you've spent so much time there. You told me that you grew up in Staten Island, that you spent meaningful time in, in Brooklyn and up island in in harlem can you think of a time across your life there that it wasn't busy and everything was just sort of like there's nothing happening right now you know uh so i was born in long island i grew up in i was born in long island grew up in westbury um shout out to nassau medical county uh (laughs) yeah and then um i uh then I moved to uh, Freeport and then officially went to elementary school in uh, 
Hempstead. Okay. And then after that, I um, moved to Staten Island. And then after that, I moved to Brooklyn, Crown Heights, East New York. And yeah. then after that, I uh, hung around the city, a little bit of Jersey. And then uh, most recently, during the pandemic, I was like, you know what? Why am I paying $1,000 for a room when I could just go down to Georgia and still get the outside? outdoors that i love um yeah but no i think each pocket has always been busy i think well you know long island tends to be more suburbs so um sure and then i think that's why i kind of gravitated towards staten island so much because both pockets long island they give they give you access to the chaos right but then mm. also you get to kind of escape the chaos and go back <laughs> to your normal sides, you know, like your, your normal day to day, you know, oh, you know, taking out the trash on Thursday nights and Sundays. That's um, right. Right. Um, but no, I find that especially as close as you get to the city, you're always going to be in some type of, you know, mix or um, event or street festival or barbecue or yes. especially you know, loud music playing, you know, um, which was so live, you know, so yeah. rich. You know, and depending on what street you're on, you know, you definitely get the mix, you know. Um, I really appreciated my time in the Bronx, though. There was a time when I was working at the Jerome Park Library and also um, later at the Performing Arts Library. Right, right. And I was living in the Bronx, uh, Yankee Stadium. Go shout out to 161. Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I stayed there for a while. And I tell you, like, I've learned so much there as far as cultural food, culture, foods, you know. Yes. Um the Spanish food, I would like to tell you, like I used to take the train to Kingsbridge and right before work when I worked at Jerome Park Library, there used to be a lady there and she had like, um, her I think was warm oatmeal and this big, big igloo. And then she would also sell tamales. So I would have my breakfast and lunch. It was just such a perfect price for everything. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed my time in the Bronx. Actually, every borough I've, I've actually stayed in I really enjoyed my time and um, has been so lively and so rich and yeah. know, taught me so much. Gone are the days of the $2 breakfast sandwich and the dollar slice. I know. Remember, you could get a butter roll and a cup of coffee for like a dollar. That's right. You, know, <laughs> you, know, you could get a whole meal. You know, it didn't even matter. And then during that time when McDonald's still had this dollar menu. That's right. Yeah. You could have breakfast, lunch, and then dinner for an easy $20, you know, and I don't think those times are way gone. You would have to, you would have to have the same bodega sandwich every meal of the day. <laughs> and you could have coffee, like two meals and there, there wouldn't be any room for a black and white or for like a bag of chips or anything. Uh -uh. Nothing, nothing. Like, I saw the saddest thing that like Arizona iced tea tall boys went up to a dollar twenty nine in Philly. And I was like, Oh my god. That is just heresy. That is pure fucking heresy. <laughs> Disrespectful, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, yeah. so I'm a bodega kid, right? I'm a bodega yes. kid. I love going with the head. So my mother used to, so my mother used to give us all change, right? We used to get yes. change. Yes. And she was like, just go do, go do something with it. So we used to yes. go to the bodega, five cent candies. Um, they used to have like these little igloo, igloo twenty five cent juices that we yeah. used to drink. Yes. <laughs> That's when Doritos are twenty five cents a bag. I don't even That's think they're right. twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> I even think they're 25 cents anymore. <laughs> yeah. Different time, right? 
yes, a different time. <laughs> and if you are only paying that much for like for for a juice or only paying that much these days for a sandwich, you might want to think twice about finishing that sandwich <laughs> right exactly you know or making sure you open it up and take a look at both sides right that's right <laughs> so this is an important point that i'm not sure we've actually explored this with any of our new york five borough guests can you explain like how just how critical the bodega, the corner store that has a little bit of everything, and the same guy always working like at the same shift, and then the same night guy working to to close you out. Can you explain just how important the bodega is to daily life in the five boroughs? So I would associate it for everybody that is actually li- kind of watching this podcast. I would associate what a bodega to me is, what a 7-Eleven might be, or a Wawa uh, might be to some of um, everybody. It's like a staple. You go there, they have everything there, you know. Um, But what I love about the bodegas particularly, um, or now it's like an ox store. You can have a bodega or you can have the ox store. um, Yeah. Where you get your chopped cheese. So on one hand, you know, chopped cheese, bacon and cheese, you know, same thing. But you go to the Bronx, so you go to more of the predominantly Hispanic culturally um, communities and you have the bodega and same right. same thing but it's definitely a staple in uh, communities definitely I would also say it's a, it's a meeting point it's a rendezvous point you, yes um, I can't tell you how many times I've passed a bodega just by just you know visiting an old part of area that I haven't seen in a while and I remember seeing somebody I haven't seen in years. I'm just like, whoa, like, you know, so it's, yes. it's, a, meeting, <laughs> it's a meeting ground as well. <laughs> There's, there is cultural currency. There is the community informational piece. I was doing a, a community organizing thing for the Interfaith Council here in Philly, and it's the same in some of the neighborhoods that are further out from the ones that are like really gentrified closer to center city. You've spent some time in Philly, so you know a little bit of the history and a little bit of the geography, but the further you get out into South up into North out into West and Southwest, the bodegas are everything because otherwise you are actually talking about food deserts. You're talking about places where you may not, have reliable acceptance of newspaper or consistent access to broadband internet to be able to see the news on the internet and nowadays nobody watches tv uh for news actual like factual news anyway so the the bodega is the one place where reliably there would be a tv it would almost always be on like a telenovela a court tv show or it would be on like the 24-hour news cycle and all of the old heads would be there and so not only is all of the current knowledge and all of the the current knowledge there but all of the old wisdom and the old ways and the stories are there too right absolutely and then to piggyback off of what you said i've also equated the bodega to be the actual community you know shop right or stop and shop or you know because 
also transportation can be play a huge role in mm-hmm. access to different produce, right? And that's right. Um, and how far you are from a supermarket or you know, a that's big right. superstore like a Costco or BJ's. So I think ultimately um, they provide access to a lot of you know things that communities need, whether it's eggs, milk, you know, yes. that can't spend the time out to travel because they don't have access to adequate, you know, uh, carring or, you know, uh, public transportation, you know, so yes. they, that is a meeting ground, which, you know, but culturally food and uh, is a meeting ground where everybody yes. kind of meets up because it's a necessity, necessity that everybody needs, you know? Um, yeah. Yes. And and you 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 learn so much instantly to your point by you could just walk into a bodega and order the same thing like your bacon egg and cheese with salt pepper ketchup and the difference you instantly learn something about that even if like the grill guy is having a bad day and you get like one tiny burnt to shit egg with a mountain of ketchup like you still learn something Maybe you learn more about that guy, but <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, exactly. And they're great. So the thing is, like, they have been so. Like, I've had some of my best conversations with people behind the counters. You know, like they're that's just right. in tune with everything, right? And then not to forget the neighborhood cat that's usually in there. You know, greeting you at the door. That's right. So, <laughs> so that's I just, right. It's just a it's a whole like world in the bodega. You know, which was a small microcosm of a bigger world that just happening around it. Everybody just happens to meet there. You know. Yes. There is something to be said. A friend of mine who graduated seminary but decided not to like become a clergy person to go into the work full time ended up becoming a bus driver in Silicon Valley, like a, a wow. shuttle a shuttle buser between the different campuses. And he says he does more like clergy work, like pastoral counseling as a bus driver because it's such a captive audience and i don't know what it is about people whose job it is to watch pay attention listen they see something about the world they gather so much wisdom in where they are positioned that we lose that we lose that when the bodega sends someone tries to 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 make it a corporate thing like you don't get the bodega experience at a wawa no you don't not even the same treatment you know because you're in and out you know um you don't know the people in wawa's i mean you might but you don't know the people in wawa's names you know you don't know the different smells the scents like the cat right you're not gonna have you're not having gonna have a cat inside of a wawa that's right or you know um, yeah, it's just, it's different, you know, um, a lot of them, a lot of these bodegas and ox stores are, um, family run businesses from immigrants who have, yes. you know, moved here. So even that, you know, access community yes. on top of a sense of community, you know, which they have certain forms. I kind of experienced a lot where I've been to a bodega and they actually have the food stand where they have arroz con pollo, they have, oh. you know, mm. um, you know, arroz habichuelas and perlil yep. and the baked chicken and the pepper steak and then the, you know, the plantains and just, just you know, just a, a world a, a away yes. from the typical. They're so important. And like the small sort of like 
yeah, there might be a camera on the corner because they don't want to get knocked over. Not all of those cameras are real. They might just be like a, a Christmas light right. in a cardboard <laughs> box. But these are also places where there I don't I, I don't know if it's it's everyone, but there is this sense that like what happens there is just meant for that community. It's not like this is not a place to be like blowing up on TikTok. <laughs> Unless no. your bodega sandwiches are that fucking good. Right. And even then, like that belongs to that community. Right. And which I have seen them more popping up. People are actually recording the making sandwiches, you know, interactions between the the counter person and yeah. the the the, uh, the the people coming in, the customers. I mean, and it's just complete like com- comedy. It's complete comedy, you know. Yeah. Like, just, and it's actually what happens. This is really just true life. What happens, you know? So, um, yeah, we need somebody to to go and do a thoughtful, like humans of New York piece, and spend like five or six years just walking around neighborhoods, talking to shop tenders and grill guys, just about to gather the stories because this is. Certainly, at least it's my, it's my experience, like being being located in Southwest Philly, that our our communities are being gentrified yes. and redlined for for so long. But I'm now of an age where I'm starting to pay more attention to the times when I have the privilege of hearing someone else's story and. I am of the persuasion increasingly that we have to slow down and we have to not even preserve because as soon as you preserve a story, it keeps, it still keeps changing anyway, but we need to at least find a way to listen so that even if they, even if those stories are recorded in a specific way, like on a cylinder or in the cloud, then at least we have some way of remembering. Right. I agree. I agree, you know? And that kind of ties into why I gravitated in towards the Jerome Robbins dance division when I was yes. at the library, you know? Yes. Um, voguing and coming into the ballroom scene or the ballroom community, mm-hmm. there is no, there was no, for me, any type of, this is, this is a technique. This is, you know, we're going to go to classes yes. that, that whole, so a lot of that history of, yes. um, for example, ballet or contemporary or modern dance, you know, or learning a technique from Bill T. Jones, you know, or, uh, Martha Graham, you know, um, Alvin Ailey. Yeah. Alvin, yeah. sorry, Alvin Ailey, you know, there's their own story and there's also a lineage, right. Of that. And there had been a lot of document documentation, a lot yes. of, you know, written, materials but when it came to the art of vogue in the ballroom scene and um being a part of it there aren't that many stories out there um to kind of shed light um and that's yes. what i tried to do at the library i tried to kind of preserve um what the idea or what the ideas have been surrounding ballroom but also highlight those people who have been actually documenting a lot of this information you know yes. um like the literature when i would make 
um, book displays, I would make sure I incorporate like you know black authors or particularly black authors who have discussed and written about the Borum community. Yes, and those pivotal people who have been um, walking constantly and also being yes. advocates, you know, and advocating for the community in a different way, you know. Um, so I have been I've been fortunate in that way in a library where I was able to represent not only the community because I'm a part of it, but also being That's a space. Right being a space where no I said this is the literature and this is right and this is wrong and we don't do it like this and this is how you know and um yeah because information is so key you know especially when um once certain people get their hands in the pot it can kind of change the whole way of doing things right um especially when something is underground is now blossoming into something so beautiful that everybody Everybody yes. wants to be a part of it, right? And to kind of keep the nuances of, you know, how it's supposed to be, the the lineages, you know, how to just get started, the stories, and mm-hmm. being, you know, typically like part of the community, you know, or as certain people say, one of the girls, right? You know, um, um, but no, it was it's imp- it was imperative, you know, and I think that um, like the like certain communities, you know, it's so rich, you know, and particularly with dance, yes. the world community is so rich with talent and just so much talent. You know, I haven't, I have never seen that much talent in one place and people will just give it for free. Like that talent is just free. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's free, you know, and it's off the top of your head. And then something instantaneous is spontaneous. It's, it's, it's not, you know, con- choreographed you know it's in the feeling it's in the moment it's being present right and yes. me being a part of that and also witnessing a lot of my friends um dancing and competing in their categories and preparing you know um having that understanding how could i do my part by showing recognition to people who have been doing it for so long because i wasn't the first you know yes. But yes. I came from a long line of people who tried to um, try to make it so um, things have been documented. Like for example, for example, uh, Luna, which is a good friend of mine, he has been taking pictures and documenting and walking balls for years, and he has been doing exhibits and showing his artwork, showing his photographs for so many years. So I say that to say that I'm part of a long line of people who have gotten the opportunity to really highlight the community and really show the community yeah. in a certain light and who was there and who wasn't there and, you know, what happened, what did that person wear, you know, um, which is amazing in itself. So there's something that I want to tease out because you've raised a couple of things that speak to the nature of art and its capacity to express provides some sort of wordless container for the human spirit, right? So the library, I know that you've mentioned that it's been a long journey to get to a point to find a position to find the right collaborators and funding to be able to start doing some of this work of collecting stories, preserving, documenting the history can you tell me more about the work that you do at the library? Yes. Yeah, so um, I've 
I was with the library for close to nine years. Yeah. Um, I so to piggyback, I have always been in education, whether I was a lieutenant yes. lifeguard working for the cities, teaching swim classes to camps, uh, in in pools, you know, gyms or recreational yes. settings. I've always thought it was imperative to kind of like teach and you know, being able to be showing somebody exactly what I've learned firsthand. And I, that kind of, I gravitated towards the library because it was, it was a way for me to kind of teach autonomously where I didn't have the administration from the DOE. I didn't have to kind of doctor up conformed, you know, uh, yes. lesson plans. I didn't have to kind of fit a rubric, you know. Um, I appreciate the library because it gave me the access to collaborate in a way that was creative. You know, I was I was an artist. Ultimately, I was an artist, you know, um, but I was able to collaborate with, with, with other educational artists in order to reach a common goal. So um, it took me about four different positions to get to the Performing Arts Library. And once I finally got to the Performing Arts Library, I was situated in Jerome Robbins Dance Division. Um, Linda Murray was the curator of the division. She is amazing. She's so yeah. sweet. She has taught me a lot about just dance in general. And um, I, I had a lot of collections um, background. I was in uh, circulating collections. Um, I managed a lot of the collections, not only for, um, before I got into the dance division, I was handling a lot of the collections for the dance division, the music division, also the theater division, and also top. Anything wow. that kind of circulating, anything that was leaving in and outside the library was kind of controlling um, that because I was one of the managers. And then I said, you know what? I want to be more specialized. Yeah. So I thought about I thought about all three different divisions. I said, what matters to me most is dance, right? Because I have that ballroom community background. And I thought that, wow, this is a perfect time for the ballroom community to be recognized in this time in this time mm-hmm. period. You know, a lot more TV shows, a lot more books are being written. Just certain things from the underground, you kind of hear the grapevine before things kind of yes. come to fruition. And I knew that was happening, right? I've always been like in tune with the underground. I've been in tune yes. with the above ground. So I was like, okay, now I'm in the middle. Like, how can we make this work, you know? Um, but I found it fascinating because once I got into the Jerome Roberts Dance Division, uh, my managers at the time, Linda Murray, uh, Arlene Yu, and uh, Phil Karg, were really inspirational. Um, at first, I was like anything new. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to really grasp. I didn't really know how to grasp that, right? Because they said, Kenneth, you're the go, you're the go-to guy. You know, we want you to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're like, here you go, do all of this stuff. Like on day one, <laughs> you're the guy, right? You're the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm the guy. So, so I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Uh, so we started having meetings and more meetings and more meetings, and then uh, I was I was I was tasked during the pandemic to handle a program called uh, Dancers Corner, where we would highlight different authors from. Yeah. We would highlight different authors in our collection, um, and create like a. a uh, program about it, which was really good because we got we had um, somebody come on and talk about Bob Fosse. We also had yeah. Arlene Yu at the time. Arlene Yu is actually the Lincoln Center um, Collections Director or Manager, so she holds she kind of houses all the archives and collections stuff at Lincoln Center as a whole. That's um, incredible. Yeah, she is incredible. But she's also um, a world-class uh, ballroom dancer. Um, you know, uh, 
kind of like not my boring, but the, yeah. of course <laughs> she is. Yes, isn't that the thing that like all of the the most fucking brilliant people have the coolest side hustle, and yes. you're just sort of like, yes, how is all of this talent centralized in one person? Like, yes. did you drink? Did you drink the right sort of slushy as a kid? Like, right. did you have the blue one instead of the red right. one? What is the deal? Right. <laughs> Right, you know, and she's she was on magazines. I think she was highlighted yep. in one of the magazines, you know. Yep. But also Linda Murray, you know, she was yep. a world class ballerina. You know, she's traveled all around the world. Right. Um, I think she was also in the Royal Ballet, if I'm not mistaken. But she, you know, kind of you know worked her way around, and she was the person to go to at the you know at the library. Then also Pill Card, he was also a dancer for many years when he came to New York, and yes. um, he was actually featured in a lot of the collections, you know. So coming into the Jerome Robbins dance division, I was so inspired, but I was so in awe. Like, are my experiences in the Boron community as equal to the trainings, to the techniques, to the experiences that they've had? Because the resources I had for the Boron community, the resources I have gotten over the years have been just because of experience being present versus the resources and the access that Mm -hmm. they had was so... When they said mm-hmm. you're the guy, I said, okay, they must have seen something in me that I didn't see, right? So in that in that aspect, I said, you know what? I have to give it a go, and I want to give it my all. And you know, all I can do is, you know, try my best. You know, I I couldn't hide because at that moment, if you realize who the life I was living before that, you know, not many people knew the life, the worlds yeah. were separate. But here I was in a perfect spot where work is actually calling for my art, my art craft, mm-hmm. my art to kind of be joined, right? And I have the support of work and also the community, the dance community, but also the support of the boring community because I know how yes. things are run and being the middleman, how are we gonna make this work, right? Um, so for a long time, I uh, I dived d- deep into the collection. I dived really into like the materials that we had. I really yeah. dived into what the collection was based around. And I also really look, looked looked at the collection and if I could see myself, right? Because we're back in, we're after pandemic and there was just kind of woke culture. People were starting to really be more yes. sensitive and aware yes. of surroundings, not only with surroundings, but also aware of certain things that had been set in stone for many years prior. So coming post pandemic, I really looked at the collection from that angle and seeing mm-hmm. where the loopholes is, seeing what community needs to be represented, not only for my community, but also from the athletic community, because also aerobics and gymnastics, you yeah. know, are part of dance, you know, but it's, you know, it could be also sports, whereas dance is a sport, but it's just more of a, a like, you know, like it's a category of sport, yeah. right, for that matter. Um, so yeah, I was ta- I was I was going through there, and it was um it was enlightening. I learned so much. I think that I really have to thank uh, Phil Carg, Arlene Yu, and also Linda Murray for uh, giving me the the reins. They basically said, "Come in, we trust you. You know, we yeah. trust you to make a judgment. We trust you. You know." And I had to grapple with that internally because yeah. who I was was a person, with the worlds I've come from. You know, now I'm in an environment where it was okay. That's right. It was okay. 
you know. Um, so I made it okay. I started doing programs. I started, you know, reaching out more to my, you know, friends that I've had in the Borman community. I said, how are we going to make this work? If they were to say, listen, Kenneth, we want to do this and here's a budget, how would that work, right? <laughs> there's, there's something to be said about the empowerment that comes from a group of people believing in you, right? At the same time, at least in my experience, to take an art that has been underground for so long, that has been largely villainized and dragged through the mud for so long, there's a lot of work that it takes to get to that space where, and there's been a lot of, there, 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 as you say, um, folks like Arlene and Linda and others have done a lot of fighting to be able to get the space built to be able to have that conversation. So yes, a gratefulness to them indeed. I want to go back to something that you mentioned there is this sense of bringing the publicly visible. We haven't talked about respectability politics yet, and I'm sure we'll get there because that's a piece of it. But you're, you've talked about bringing the component of the library and the storytelling and the part that people can see and then, and then the way that ballroom has been depicted on TV, Pose, at least from what I can see, not being an expert, was a watershed moment. Can you tell me a, a bit more about your experience of the underground, of the ball scene, to, to give us a, a, a fuller picture of the two sort of parts that you're, that you're bringing together in the library work? So on one aspect, you know, you have a traditional institution where um, it has been created to provide education, but also provide education to, um, especially where I come, uh, the uh, uh, more research library, the reference library, kind of catered to more an elitist, sure. um, yes. elitist academic field. Yes. Versus a community library where it's set in the community. You know, the literature is kind of doctored towards you know the age range. The programs yes. are more doctored towards yes. the, the community. Um, but ultimately, it's it's an educational institution, and yes. Um, Usually people who can afford that type of education, you know, um, don't hang around the ballroom seat, just to put it that. Yes. Like the worlds do not mix, you know. Um, There's an element of class to this. There's an yes. element of racial divide as well. There's an element of so many things. Like all, all of the, thing, the, the things that come with privilege and intergenerational wealth. Yeah. If you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world. And nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it and makes a great iced coffee. 
BBP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. That's code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout at bvp.coffee. Now back to the program. Right. So on the other hand, the Borum community is, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say the have-nots, but it's people or a community of who have something they want to show the world. Yeah. And they just haven't had the opportunity to show them in other forms. Yes. And I think the Borum community, especially for me, was a outlet. You know, I wasn't shamed by my close family for wanting to, you know, dance, you know, yeah. in a certain form that was not typical. Because, I mean, if you say voguing now, mostly people understand. But if you say voguing 10, 15 years ago, they're like, what? <laughs> they're like, uh, is that a form of contemporary model, modern? You know? Yeah. And then also, for me, I walked a beauty category. So, um, face, you know, I think that each beauty right. category is uh, individualized between, you know, man, woman, you know, transgendered, you know. Um, um, so to walk a beauty category in that type of environment, you know, um, I don't think a lot of people would understand uh, back then. I think that's why it was yes. kind of suppressed and it stayed underground. But it also, as I come back to say that, it was a lot of people who had talent, who had something they wanted to show the world, who yes. had a Jones in their bones, you know, they wanted, you know, they wanted to let it out, you know, and that was their only outlet, you know, um, or the space that they could do it in and actually become good enough where they were recognized for something outside of what they were experiencing in their daily life or the the real world that wasn't underground, you know, the so-called real world. Right. You know, um, and there was no money to it. You know, a lot of times is what yes. you saw on Pose, you know, you would steal, you know, an outfit. You know, a lot of times is a lot of these uh, events are happening at nighttime, way past, you know, normal hours, you know. And then also to realize a lot of these events are happening in multiple different states around, around. And well, now the world is just so many yes. different events yes. going on. So it doesn't really leave room for a typical nine to five lifestyle, you know. Um, and then also you indulge in other stuff in order to keep up or keep up, you know, keep up or, you know, keep in the mix, you know, and uh, just keep going, you know. Um, yeah, it, the way you made money was different. The way you spent money was different you know, versus, you know, in the real world versus the born community. So um, it was difficult to navigate at times, especially yes. coming from both lifestyles, because I pretty came, I came from a good family, you know. Um, and I was a swimmer, you know, I swam, you know, D3 in my undergrad, you know, I, I, I was a lieutenant lifeguard for 11 years for the city, you know, but then I would go to balls and, you know, do all this other stuff, you know, when I wasn't on the island or Long Island or Staten Island, I would venture off the island and be a Soho kid and be with that whole mixy set, you know? Um, so I think that, um, yeah, the worlds didn't mix and I, I kept, I, I subconsciously kept those worlds 
separate. And I think that's why it kind of hit me a little bit harder when I got to the Jerome Robin Dance Kids Division because I was yeah. told to suppress it for so long. But now yeah. I'm here. They're like, we got, we understand, Kenneth. You go ahead and do your thing. And just, well, if he got this far, he definitely knows what he's doing. You know, that type right. of, <laughs> you right. know, that type of understanding that I didn't have not yet equated to, you know. Yes. <laughs> there is the, at least in my experience, when suddenly, my my experience was was um going to going to divinity school and and showing up on the campus of uh of of Yale for the first day and thinking like well I don't know what I'm doing here like there's 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 that sort of imposter syndrome that you think like why why do I belong here yeah the so you you've talked about this question of the two halves of your your overground life that's not that's not the right word um <laughs> above ground safe for work life and then the the beauty the gloriousness of of the underground of of the ballroom scene of all that doesn't have a home for expression from the hours of 9 to 5 talk with me more about the the journey of the internal journey of how you came to bring start bringing those things together because how <laughs> how how is that possible i think that i've just gotten so good at realizing that in new york city for example well you know in philadelphia that Let's just say you're in one community. It's not going to be the same from another community, sure. right? Yeah. So naturally, if you're coming with from any of the tri-state areas, you have to be a chameleon. You have to be able yes. to navigate whether to drop your purse low or keep it close to you clutched, right? You yes. Just <laughs> think. Yes. And it's, it's the same type of um, way of I kind of had to navigate um, my upbringing um, and my family life and friends' life and what I was doing in school and, you know, the experiences I was sharing with other friends it could not yes. be translatable to the lifestyle I was living in the city or in a born community or going from state to state. Um, the yes. conversations are not the same. The interactions are not the same. The, the, it was different, right? And then sometimes is. um, you just couldn't say certain things because it was supposed to be talked about, right? Uh, there was just, there was just no room for um, that type of, you know, um, yeah. being a part of, right? Um, yeah. But as I got older, I started to realize that um, I only had one life, right? And I didn't want to be. Um, I didn't want to have them separate anymore. You know, I didn't want to have this so-called double life. I didn't want to have this so-called, I can't be this way because I'm already being pegged out to be this way in this world. And I can't be, you know, but then when you meet people in, outside, you know, just ha whether you're in the real world or yeah. a boring world, you just happen to walk past somebody because you're walking past in the city. Yeah. How are you, what happens in that interaction when you're with somebody who doesn't know, you know? Um, and I experienced a lot of that, you know, where, oh, I didn't know. And, you know, well, uh, you know, so um, 
as I got older, you know, that's why I'm so fortunate that I was able to um, kind of make the world to meet because I was able to really come out of the closet, as you can say. Yeah. Um, I can yeah. really, <laughs> I can really, you know, say, listen, this is who I am and um, I'm proud of it. You know, um, I think before, even though I was proud of it, I don't think that the, what was known about it prior to yeah you know i think now it's like more of a, a sense of endearment now you come from the ballroom scene so now you're just like you've been through stuff you know how to move in this world you are ready like we need you you know so i take that to say i think that each world has given me what i needed needed to to kind of like move forward right yeah and experience life you know but also be challenged in life where you are going to be challenged whether you're competing or you're looking for something probably making sense it's it's, it's yeah it's such a such a it's a, such a dichotomy that i i think back now that you know i was running from somebody i was running from one lifestyle to be in one lifestyle but then running from another lifestyle to be another lifestyle yeah you know so i was being split you know um yeah it was really it, it was it was it was it was I'm getting better at it now. I must say I'm getting better at it now because, yes. um, and I think that only comes with age, you know? Um, right. I think that I've always tried to, um, as I've, I've always tried to be a people pleaser, you know, not try to uh, shed um, bad light onto my family name or my family because we were really, I was growing, I grew up really religious, you know? Um, and then I knew that if the world was ever mixed, then one part of that, my happy life would have been in shambles right and ultimately you know you don't want to have that bad reflection you know yeah whereas now i'm like i appreciate that i had that opportunity because now not that many people had that that upbringing you know that 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 understanding that you have to go through the struggles you have to you know what are you going to do what are you going to do in that situation how are mm-hmm. you going to navigate mm-hmm. you know um, and I think that only prepared me for a life and I'm able to, you know, have interviews now, be confident enough to speak about it, you know, even when I'm going to my real life, speaking to my family, you know, oh, I didn't know you were, you know, what are you doing now, you know, and yeah. open about it, you know, and really letting them know that even though I made a decision, whether I'm in a ballroom scene or in the, in the working in nine to five, I am the same person, um, right? you know, and the same person. There's... A couple things that I hear in that. One, being the the person who has integrated all of these experiences, I suspect you've gotten very, very good at surviving. <laughs> and we can we can lean into the details of that as much as you're comfortable or not. But from what we know, uh, it we can we can say we some i I mean if you want to look there there are plenty of great documentaries on on youtube that are much more consistent to a realistic depiction of ballroom than the the stylized look of pose and its contemporaries so you you can see all of it you can go and find all of it but the underground scene and the fact of yes money has to be made there are when queerness is involved when 
when blackness or or at least s- some non-whiteness i think i think you can broadly say when non non-whiteness is in, in is involved there is the there is the risk of all sorts of exploitations there is so, so i get the sense that you have become an excellent survivalist an urban survivalist i'll add that <laughs> qualification we're not talking about like naked and afraid or like we're, we're, ta- we're talking about concrete jungle here you know i so i bring it back to i'm the middle child right sure, um, sure. and uh, i grew up in a single um parent household my mother is amazing you know she raised all of us and um yeah. but i was the only man in the house you know so i really had to navigate those waters you know um i have become better um conversationalist because of it mm-hmm. you know i have become a better um i've been better at empathy uh because of its sympathy but i also think overall i've become a better mm. um under, I've, I've become better at knowing who what place i play in the world mm-hmm. right because at that moment you're not the first and you're not the last you're the middle and you're not a girl you're a boy right <laughs> so mm. you figure it out you have to figure it out right um mm-hmm. you know um Going through puberty, puberty, you figure things out about, you know, you can't use Summer's Eve. You have to use, you know, Old Spice, you know? So who's teaching that to me? I could. Right, <laughs> right. right. You know? So, <laughs> so yeah. I, you know, so just I, little by little, I've had to learn as I go, right? And yeah. I think that um, it's made me a better person overall because, um, I've had to be a, a huge observer. I think I observe, I, I feel, mm. and, and I also take the time out to feel the energy around me, you know? Um, yeah. um, when I come into a space, what's the energy, you know? Like yeah. I, you know, how much of myself can I give versus how much more, less of myself can I give? And I think that running that, just for about being the middle person, I also think about being in situations I've always tried to be the last person to speak because then you get an idea of what happened in the room, what the feeling in the mm-hmm. room is, you know, everybody's, what p- part everybody plays in the room. And then now you're here, what part do you play? Because you're not just here just because you fit, well, sometimes you're here because you fit the, you know, the typical stereotype, you know, yes, but, you know, yes, but then also yes. on top of that, what else, why else are you here, right? Why else are you asked to share this space? Just in your friend space, just in your work, it could be anything, you know? Um, so I, I've, I've always taken that into account wherever I've come into a room or come into a space or just come into a community, right? Um, what's already been set? Why am I here at this particular time? And learning something from it so that I can take it to the next part of the journey. Mm. And it's always it's always helped out the next part, if that makes sense. You know, it's yeah. always, I feel like it's um, like pay it forward type of thing, you know, being understood, like, you know, not you're not doing something for somebody, but you're, you're understanding something yeah. so you can pay it forward the next time. Like for somebody yes. like, you know, I just, I, I really am a big believer of um, um, being in it for the right reasons and observing it, you know, the energy has to be, you know, genuine, you know, it has to be heartfelt, yes. you know, and if you're just doing to get something out of it, then ultimately it's going to fail, right? Because that's right you're expecting something back. So I think that ultimately when it comes to survival, I've always done stuff to survive, but I also knew that 
I wanted to be there. You know, it was a it was a choice. You know, if I could at any and at yes. any moment I can say I can stop it and walk away and move on with my life and figure something else out. So there's a piece in that that is just woven throughout this component of your story, the other bits that we've gotten to so far. It was one of the things that I wanted to hone in on specifically, and that is the issue of black masculinity. We talked about um, you having um, your your gay father. I talk about having my my disability big sib and my trans big sib like all the time we've talked about you you mentioned that that you you were raised by a single mom and there are fewer things that politicians love to talk about more than black masculinity when they're trying to seem progressive when and for for sure when they when they want to seem the woke side of anything help me understand as someone who sits who sits outside of that conversation but is trying to be a better ally is trying to be a better supporter of at least doing their part to to listen better to 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 be helpful in building the spaces where these conversations can happen help me understand a little bit more what what questions we should be asking and what conversations we should be having around black masculinity versus the sort of stuff that makes prestige dramas at, at 9 p.m on fx or makes the evening news or gets into talking points of mayoral and presidential debates. Wow, that's deep. Um, so I'm going to speak for myself sure. right now. Absolutely. Um, I've always been curious. I've always needed to know something, right? And I say that to say that initially, when I walk into a room, I'm a bl I'm black. I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm a black. Yes. Right. Yes. So what I look like already precedes, you yes. know, when I what I have to say or what I am doing. What I you know at that moment, you know, when I walk into a room and see a black guy, okay, what what's what is it up to? What is he up to? Yes. What, what's going on? What's his story? You know. Um, so I've always been able to walk into the room. And then I'm also, I've also been kind of in spaces where I'm the only one from 100 to 50 feet, just in a working environment, you see? Mm -hmm. So when my counterparts had ideas, able to speak about ideas and throw off different collaborative ideas, I was the only one in the room with my experience and my way of doing things and creativity. Um, there was nobody else to bounce bounce ideas off being, you know. I, to go back to go to being curious, I've always wanted to know what makes everything work with the conversation. You know, you have this, it goes here, it goes here, it goes here, you know. Um, excelling in certain things, you have to practice, you dedicate time, you just, right? How are you going to get yep. there? 
Um, that's what everything, whether I was in sports, whether I was um, in education, whether I was dancing, you know, I wanted to completely dive in deep. I think there are so many different biases as being a black man that you can't experience those because it's not this stereotypical, right? For example, I speak really proper, right? Um, me and now I think me in urban communities, I think that I, even still, I mean, I, I still get it. Certain people, you know, would date me before that won't date me, you know, like I've, I've gotten that. I speak mm-hmm. too, too good. I don't, not the typical, you know, what box do I cut cookie cutter? Thing. Yes. And I think the idea of the black masculine body or the black being black and masculine, uh, just now in a general topic that there is particularly no box, right? Um, We shouldn't be fit into a box, you know? Um, I think that the the black 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 masculinity should be explored into the full event, full authentic self, if that makes sense. Where it's not, if you do this, you are gay. If you do this, you are bi. If you do this, you are less than of a man. Because I think that they Mm -hmm. expect the black masculine body or the black masculine entity to be at the top. So it's a top of being stoic and being masculine and being, you know, rough and being sometimes angry and sometimes being feared, sometimes being, you know... um, manipulated because whether it's for fetishes or whether because it's a piece or whether because it's hot for the time yes so all of that is the black masculine body but i say that to say that for my counterparts who might be caucasian or who might be uh or, or, you know, um, Asian, you know, uh, yeah. for prime, prime example, I went to South Korea, which was beautiful. My sister Elizabeth was teaching abroad for about four or five years. And I went over there, you know, I went to go visit her because she was kind of being homesick, you know, I was, you know, doing, I was like, why not go to South Korea? So I took this 16 hour flight uh, to go visit her in South Korea. And I noticed that it was completely different there. You know, it was so different that women were like friends who were who are women they were dressing alike girls were dressing alike they would sit yeah. in each other's laps no problem yeah. and men would do the same thing they would be really playful they would sit in each other's laps they would hold hands they would dress alike it was similar right yes there was no it was no blurred lines and no one called them a gay lesbian nobody called them queer it was just the way of society yeah. right the way of society right i go to different communities where um uh, my Caucasian friends, you know, you know, they're allowed to explore themselves or try to, uh, oh, I'm going to do this, I want to try it, and then be praised because they're trying something new. They're being praised because they are, they're um, exploring the outsides of the of, of the world. They get praised for experimentation and failure. Yes, versus. <laughs> Versus the black masculinity, there is no, I mean, there's praise, but then when you fail, you're being vilified and then you're being dragged through the mud. And then any, any, anything you do is a slippery slope, right? Anything you say, you say is a slippery slope. Um, Yeah, that's what I experienced. um, And that's what I've also seen. So it can be really, really hard. I think that also, not only just the looking out of the community, but also inside the community as well. I think we hold ourselves to a standard of 
you know, how can you be, you know, one way, yeah, 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 but also you yeah. holding hands with a guy just doesn't mix, right? Because yeah. that's like the epitome of being masculine, being, you know, or masculinity, or you know, or being, you know, just masculine, yes. just the portraying of a man and you know, that type of, you know, ego driven, you know, alpha male. And there's nothing wrong with yes. all of that. There's nothing wrong with all of that, but there's also okay to be both, right? Yes. Why does one thing equate to another, especially when there's a preference, right? Just because what I like in the bedroom or what I like as far as what I'm attracted to shouldn't equate to what my personality is. What what? Yes. It, it, does, it just doesn't equate. You know, it just the inside doesn't necessarily have to match what I'm doing outside because you know the outside is an ever changing world. I mean, we go through the seasons, so the trees change. You can call that, you know, yes. black, you know, you got, <laughs> you know, so. Um, yeah, I think that um, it's 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 a, it's a it's a contrast. I think ultimately in the community we have to do a better job of supporting our black men and the black masculinity and letting us explore um, our black masculine sides, you know, and what that looks like to us, you know, um, you know, I just, and then also in, in the public too, you know, um, uh, is it just fetishized? Is it just hot for the moment, or is this a lifestyle? Because it's a lifestyle for me. As a lifestyle to be black and masculine for a lot of my counterparts, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. And as you've identified, there there needs to be room to try things. This is one of the keys, one, one of the key pieces that, that I think you've identified about white masculinity that that is it's just blatantly a point a point of racism let's talk about let's talk about white supremacy it is just white supremacy that there is no there is no room for failure or no room for experimentation is is what i think i hear you saying so this is the question that i'm constantly living into as as someone who's as as someone whose sense of feminine identity, like in, in thinking about my experience of gender, is based in is based in forms so much in, in white feminism that there is a certain just evil, profoundly insidious and and just rotten, baked in component that there are parts of our cultures that define our success internally not even talking about when we are having when, when we are when we are working with the culture of whiteness and, and, and white f folks broadly speaking that we are defining our level of successfulness by how 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 our proximity to whiteness is there a way for us to tease out what it means to be successful that is not benchmarking itself by whiteness. Wow. I think there is room. I think with anything great, especially when it has to do with, you know, equality. Yeah. It's going to take time. Because yeah. I think that things are in play, and I think that things are are written, and I think that also not a, 
things have been written and makes it law. And now that law happens, yeah. it has to be followed. And now it's not followed, then you're the black sheep. And now you're, what do we do with yeah. black sheep? What do we do with people who don't follow the no pro quo, right? And why is the phrase the black sheep? <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so I just think that we're going up against a lot of things that have been written and a lot of yeah. things that have been followed for so many years and so generations. Yeah. And then it becomes just initially in our blood, right? It's in the way yes. we talk. It's in the way we, yes. we, 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 we interact with each other. <clears throat> so ultimately, it's a learned behavior. Yes. Right? So until we can kind of get rid of everybody's learned behavior by switching the laws, switching switching the interactions, yes, and kind of make it universal, right? Because like I said, I had experience in South Korea, which was mind blowing, but also appreciated it. Like I was just so in awe, yes. and I was like, "Wow, I want to go back to the states and hold my hold my cousin's hand, who's a, who's a guy." Like you know, like because we're cousins, right? Right. And and have that be okay, but ultimately, I definitely do think that. Um, Certain systems have been in place because there was a, a a mentality that it should happen and it needs to happen this way. Yeah, and I don't think until that ideal those ideologies kind of dissipate and say that that's not okay for just overall humanity. Yeah, that I don't think there's going to be any type of growth. But I do think there is space, and I do think that um, we are living in the space. Well, we're getting closer to a space. I think this is probably like, you know, like before we were living in the space, like there was just so much happening, boom, 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 now we're up. But now we're actually living in a space yeah. where people are starting to discuss what they can do better, you know, as a, just a human being, right? What they, how can they treat somebody better, you know? And I think I'm looking yes. outside of it, of just religion, because God says it a certain way, treat unto others as you would want to treat it. But it just because you're my brother or you're my sister, you know, yeah. like, you know, like, uh, did you eat today? You know, how are you feeling? You know, how was work, you know, or just yeah. something outside of the norm. Um, but you just take out the colorism because you'd realize a lot of this is colorism and classism and where you come from, what do you do? Who do you hang out with? And yes. now the whole event of social media is only making it even worse because now it's about who you know, and you know, it's not that genuine, genuine feel of this going on, and what um, you can communicate in sixty seconds. Right, right. You know, clickbait, clickbait. So I definitely do think that um, the spaces are being created, um, but I think that with anything great, it's going to need time. Yeah. I also think that also I think that um, that old way of thinking has to completely, you know, kind of be done with you know and i think it's happening you know i'm I'm looking around the world i think that the pandemic really closed a lot of doors for people who weren't really who were holding the door closed nobody can walk through right nobody can get through but i also think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done um and um conversations like this that are happening not only just with us but um yeah seeing around there's just a certain type of people are like i don't want that to happen and why isn't anybody talking about this? Or did yes. you notice? Did you notice that? Like you know, um, but yeah, I think that needs more. That ha- needs to happen more. Um, aware, uh, being aware, you know. Yes, you hit on a couple of things again, just to to, to tease it out. Like 
it is in our blood that over the generations of people who have experienced whatever sort of oppression it is for whatever part of who they are it is that trauma is something that lives in us we don't get the choice to not inherit it when when we are born and we have thankfully the we have we have the privilege of being able to ask the question how am i going to how am i going to deal with that can i break the cycle of trauma can i how can i find the healing that i need who can be a part of my healing journey at least that's that's the experience that it's been for me in trying to recover what it means to be korean but be adopted what it means to be to to be in in a gender bendy sort of space and but and and not have like met my like trans and disabled big sibs until i was well over the age of 30 right is there i'm not sure i'm not sure that i have another question but just want to mark the point that we get to choose to to live differently yes it takes a lot of work and usually some sort of help from the community or professionals who have gone before us but we 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 get to live differently in spite of what our politicians and our media tell us right especially from what our parents lived you know their lifestyle you know um what they experienced you know what what they had to go through you know um you know whether it was you know living in communities what they had to experience you know not having the resources um not having the organizations now that they have now you know that were supporting them and helping them from eviction or their you know support whether it's food or rent or getting your light shut off you know transportation you know and then go back even further is the grandparents what they had to do with especially the race issues you know what they had to experience and how did they how did they survive you know yes um so whenever i speak i always remember that i i come from a lineage right yeah and the work that i'm doing now is because my forefathers or my people that i know wherever community i'm in had the chance to do that work and i'm just picking up where they left off because i'm a younger body i have a little more energy you know and this is how you train the next generation for the fight or the struggle that they might the things that they might face you know um to go back into like a lot of the organizations, you know, especially for the LGBTQ plus community, yeah. there have been a lot of different organizations that kind of cater to the youth and provide them with resources and housing right. and sheltering, a shelter, you know, um, which is like, you don't realize how much that, that helps versus when I was young, 16, 17, growing up, and I saw a lot of my friends who were homeless because they got kicked out, you know, yeah. what, what were they doing for money? You know, now, there's places and things set in place, you know, um, that, that can help them, you know, um, even still, I can remember a time when, um, for the library, I was, um, 
I wanted to do something different while I was at the library. This was before I was at the Performing Arts Library. I was at the Jerome sure. Park. I was at the Jerome Park Library in um, the Bronx when I was living out there. And I speak to my manager, and uh, she was just so inspiring. Like I think, and also another thing, I had some great leaders in my lifetime. Like I've had some amazing leaders in my lifetime, and being around leaders who are leaders and they've had to have the struggles. When you see someone who is a leader themselves and they're still trying to navigate who they are and what they want to do, you're helping yeah. you're helping mold mold that kind of way of being. How you're going to rise to the occasion? So I say that to say I said I went to my boss one day and I realized that the library goes to Rikers Island once you know once every month. You know they would visit the, the, the Rikers Island. I said, well, librarians go to the library the jail it's like i've heard about records i was so scared i was like wow but i was so scared but i was also like intrigued you know i was like what's what is going on why wasn't i worried about it you know why am i not yeah. there helping why i'm not there helping my my brothers right <laughs> so, yes. just, so i said hey uh nicola do you mind if i uh apply to be like this part-time like librarian at rikers island and she was like yeah just give me the details and what days you need we'll f- figure something out so I was like, um, okay. So, wow. so But at that at that moment you have to realize I was about maybe a six months to a year in. And sure. I think they were just rechanging sure. their whole staff. I wasn't a librarian at that time, but I was already an assistant to the children's department who had a librarian. They would do programs, you know, book talks, all of this. Then there wasn't a young adult librarian, so I accepted the role as a young adult librarian, handling the collection and the program for young adults. And then sure. she needed then she needed somebody to do like uh, be second in charge when she wasn't there. So here I was already a year and a half in, being oldest above everybody else. So I was her kind of go to. She kind of like so we had a rapport where she can come to me. She know what I know my work ethic. Yeah. So anything I knew I was going to get involved in, she was like, absolutely, why not? I think it would be great for you. You know, that's the next step of your journey. I started going to, I reached out to um, someone in the corrections facilities for uh, the libraries, particularly department. And then I said, yeah, come to a training. They talked about the training and what you should do, what you should not do. And I said, wow, this is getting real, this is getting intense. So um, first day, we had to meet in Long Island Island City next to a deli. We had to be like at nine, nine o'clock. And then we had to take a bus from uh, Long Island City over to Rikers Island and you're on a bus with everybody else because you have to take a bus MTA bus and then you get on another bus that goes around the whole like campus mm-hmm. we go it's about four or five of us we go on the bus with everybody else and then we're lined up in a circle and then they have the door come around they sniff you out then you show your badges you go through one checkpoint right. you go to another checkpoint you show your badges then you go to another checkpoint you walk through the gymnasium and you just see this big open gymnasium. And the only thing that's separating you and anybody else is just like a row of crates. Well, all the materials, periodicals, magazines, books, literature. Um, we had some, um, uh, uh, we had some biographies. We had some um, urban, urban, urban uh, novels. Um, so anything that was like kind of being donated was sent to there so people can actually check them yeah. out. And then also we wanted, yeah. like we had a clipboard. We would write down the, the person's ID number. We would also, you know, write down how many materials they were checking out. Sure. But in that aspect, 
I was in a different community, right? But I also knew that being a black man, I could have made one choice. You know, I could have I could have made a choice to be somewhere else and chose to be there and ended up at any moment in my life there. Or right? someone could have made a choice to you. Right. Right. L- l- um, l- lest we forget. Yes. Right. Exactly. You know, so um, I was so like I was so in awe. I was so inspired again, not because of the position I played, just because of their spirit, you know, um, I'm a great person. I'm a great communicator. And I think that whenever I get a chance to communicate on a deeper level with somebody, then that just ultimately, you know, makes me feel a lot better because there's, there's nothing behind it. There's nothing, mm-hmm. um, are contrived there's nothing like mm-hmm. false there's nothing you know there's nothing unnatural or unreal about it right mm-hmm. um so i learned so much because i realized i just you know the conversations we would have these conversations i was i was more worried about what 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 would you read what at the what do you read like what yeah. what, what do you like to read right what, yeah. what, what what do you find you know there was some some of the um uh patrons would Oh, I need the second series. If you have the second series, can you make sure you bring it to me? You know, or I need the new, I need the new, I need the new, you know, magazine for this month. Can you make sure yeah, that you kind yeah, of yeah. make sure you bring some next time that just takes them out the system? Yeah. So, you know, it was it was it was um inspirational because I got to learn about materials more in a different way. Like I'm always learning, right? I've always tried to make sure that even though I'm yeah. an educator, even though I'm an educator, how can I also learn so I can be better at educating? Right. And I think um, with education, it's um, with education, it should be free. Right. Education should be free because that knowledge can be passed on. Um, Those experiences can be passed on. Right. And yes, I think that knowledge that I gained as far as helping the patrons, especially in that element, was even more than um, any thing I've ever done only because it hit home, right? I, mm. it, it, these are my brothers, right? These yes. were the same people I grew up with. These were the same people that might have made a bad decision, right? You know, or was in a wrong, wrong environment, right? You know, who, yeah. or they didn't have the resources, the same resources that I had, or wasn't given the same opportunities that I had, or wasn't curious the way I was curious to say, I want to test this out or try this out, or it's okay if I fail, you know, because I didn't mind failing, you know, I Mm. didn't mind, I didn't mind falling completely on my face, getting a bloody nose, scrapes and bruises and have to be out of work for two, two or three weeks and then come back even stronger. Now I I know I'm not going to fall. And if I do fall, I'm not going to fall as hard. Yes. You know, um, so yeah, I just say that, you know, there's been many, many situations, but that one really sticks out to me because I've always been trying, I've always tried to volunteer and give back to the community, right? I've always tried to, um, but not only just give back to the community, be a part of the community. You know, what yeah. sense are you, what sense are you here visiting a community on special occasions where you're not really here every day to see what happens, what's, what's happening right. or what's going on, right? Yes. So now you're just benefiting to say you did something. Um, so I've always tried to make sure that if I'm going to be supporting a community, I have to make sure that I am with them in the community 
day on and day out. So I know what's going on. I know the stories. I it's a, it's a personal level, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. There's there's an arc to your career to your story that I'm just noticing. So you've done this work of of documenting the ballroom scene at the library. You're doing this, you, you did this work as well of bringing opportunities for reading and information and knowledge uh, to, to, to the work of, of, of the prison system, to Rikers. You, you did the work of, of bringing these conversations into events at the Lincoln Center. There, there is this trend that I think that I'm noticing is that you have this gift of creating the frame, the space, the container, when, so that other people can have this opportunity to learn and experience and grow and to live. And there aren't a lot of people, I would say, that, that lead with that skill. And and we all have we've all had our times when we've when we we've been the creators on stage and 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 we all we all still do that as well. That's what keeps us being the artists that we are. But that's that skill of building the container of of crafting the space in which life and discovery can happen is so important. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've. I've been fortunate, you know, I think that um, I know that I've been fortunate. That's the thing. Like, I'm so aware that yeah. I know that I'm fortunate, that I know that I was meant to be here. I was meant yeah. to be in this particular space. I was meant to be in this particular body. I was meant to have this particular mind frame. I was meant to go here or do this or, and then being aware of that. And then now that you're here and you're aware what are the experiences you're going to, you're going to have here? Yeah. Because now then it's about the experiences and yeah. what are you bringing to the experience now? Because now you're in the space and you're, you know, you're sharing the space, yeah. you know, and you have to take yourself completely. The ego has to be completely out of it. There cannot yeah. be any ego. Um, and I say that to say that I think in a lot of situations um, with education, you have to approach education in a form of, you're an infant. You have to uh, really uh, explore the unknowns in education because if you come to education knowing, thinking you're educated, you're going to be, you know, mind blown by if you learn something else. Yeah. But if you always know, if you always know that education is a con something continuous, there's not a start and end time of education, whether you are in your personal life, you know, whether or you are uh, building relationships, right? Or whether you are, you know, building a professional life, you know, it's a, it's a layer and layer and layer and layer of education uh, that happens. Um, and I think I've been able to grasp that understanding that um, I'm being, I'm a student. I'm always going to be a student. And even when I become, you know, a parent, I'm going to be a student still because I'm going to yeah. have these little minds, right? Yeah. <laughs> these little minds running. And I'm like, well, we have to figure it out together. What are we going to do? You know? And um, or even the next journey I take, you know, um, new new people I have to 
you know, new personalities, yes. new, yes. new, new examples, new, new, new challenges. Right. Um, so I, I, I know that that has helped me, you know, I think mm. that I have always been able to go inside of a situation knowing that I'm not an old all, you know, I don't want people to just because I come from a library, I've come do this, I do that. I'm a know-it-all. I don't know it all. And yeah. I've been around people who know it all and, they just end up looking arrogant, right? You don't want to be around that person. Oh yeah, I was there twenty. I sure, just, <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. You get it, yeah, you know, yeah. It's just I'm like, oh, you know. So um, I'm always a student, you know. Um, yeah, sure. I can, yeah, I can teach, but I would rather be a student because, oh wow, you know what? I've never heard it. Somebody put it like that. I never heard somebody explain it like that, right? Like if you mm-hmm. have that aha moment, mm-hmm. like wow, the way you said that, you know, I've never heard it that way. I, yeah. That's a better way of saying it. So you can learn. Um, so yeah, I'm always fascinated. I'm always fascinated um, by learning something new or even just growing an environment because I mean that I'm, I stay long enough to learn. Yeah. If that makes yeah. sense. Well, Kenneth, I am so grateful that you've spent these moments just sharing with us the stories and working on some of this really difficult shit we have just one question left for you that's the same question that we ask everyone as we're wrapping up our time together and it has a little bit to do with impact and legacy and that Mm. question is what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it i want the world to look like a place that it's open to all, yeah. you know, um, I want it to look like a place where it is accessible to everyone. Um, I want yeah. it to, I want the world to be a place where you are able to explore vicariously because it's a Tuesday, you know, I want the world to be um, more forgiving you know, I think that it's okay to fall, you know, um, I think that the world needs to be more forgiving, you know, and know that we are imperfect, you know, um, and imperfections are what make us who we are, you know, if we were perfect, we would be AI, if we don't <laughs> want to be AI, right, uh-oh, uh, but um, no, I just, I just think that in order for, um, I would love to see that, you know. Um, I think that also comes in love and and also just being genuine. But I also want people to really realize that it's okay to be yourself. Um, it's okay to explore. I want people to understand that it doesn't matter where you come from or where you're going or what experiences you had, whether positive or negative, that you're not defined by those those experiences, those situations, because you're fortunate to live another day and try again. Um, and I just want people just to understand that from the soul and spiritual and just internally so that can be projected out um, into the world. So continue on, pay it forward, you know? Thank you so much, Kenneth Murthy, for being on the program. Thank you so much, Paulie. My thanks to my guest, Kenneth Murphy. You can find out more about him and his work at the links in the episode description. Thank you for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. 
This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia in the unceded neighborhood of the Black Bottom community and on the ancestral land of the Lenape Nation, who remain here in the era of the Fourth Crow and fight for official recognition by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to this day. You can find out more about the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania and how you can support the revitalization of their culture by going to lenape-nation.org. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoy listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.